this time we go back to the future with back to the future part two and along the way we ask how can the exact same movie work twice in a series what happened to marty's watch and did this film make any correct predictions for 2015 we're precisely on schedule on this edition of force fed sci-fi Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, the Sean Michael Culp. Boo, yeah. Boo! <laughs> Talking about Back to the Future, part two, our uh, our first sequel, mm-hmm. really, I think, on the on the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. Yeah. Yeah, our first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't think we've had any, like, no? I mean, we did the Star Wars. But that was kind of like a sweet. Same thing with the Terminator. Right. Yeah. Um This is our first, I, I would say, like true sequel yes. that we've discussed on the show. We we have our list structured in a way, if we are covering series, that we will cover the series in sequential order. Mm-hmm. Uh, with d- doing uh, Back to the Future in the early days of the podcast and now returning to the franchise almost a year later is uh, <laughs> almost appropriate timing. It is almost actually because this is around the time when we started recording episodes. Right. So now we know throughout the year, folks, what's coming up is probably episode two. <laughs> we'll see. Get ready to be bored. All right. So quick breakdown of Back to the Future Part Two. So immediately following the events of the first film, Doc Brown arrives back in 1985 to take Marty and Jennifer to 2015 and interfere in intervene. Excuse me in the future of their children and inadvertently change events in their past. So now they must travel back to the events of the first film and fix the future. Ooh. So a lot of back and forth with the timeline here kind of amps up the time travel aspect of the film to 11, Yes, in my opinion. <laughs> they definitely focus on it a lot more than in the first one, which is just, get me home, get me home. Try not to bang my mom. Get me home. Yeah, there's no concern about the (laughs) 1.21 gigawatts this time around. (laughs) Not at all. Which I think, you know, he had to to add something, a little slice. Yeah, but now it's just Doc looking like a freak picking through people's trash. Yes, and the whole time he's just like spouting out stats. The world is going to end. It's a paradox that will cause the entire chaos. The world shred apart. Or they'll just pass out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So breaking down the cast and crew of Back to the Future Part 2, it's largely the same cast and crew from the first film uh, Mm -hmm. directed by Robert Zemeckis, who returned to to direct this film, this series, and the next uh, entry, Part 3. He also worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the year prior to making this film. Yes, he was hectic. He did this film, and then he did back-to-back, Back to the Future 2 and 3. So this man was a busy bee. He was really starting to become the director we know him to be now. Oh, yeah. Because prior to Back to the Future, he did Romancing the Stone, and then Back to the Future, and now Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which if you haven't seen that one, I would call that the non-sci-fi recommendation of the week we've had one in a while yeah it's such a fun (laughs) movie to watch because you see all these great cartoon characters running around i mean it's still horrible to watch christopher lloyd dip a cartoon shoe in a vat of acid though (laughs) oh yeah because he's that robert zemeckis loves christopher lloyd he does (laughs) um also returning in the uh, series we have michael j fox as marty mcfly which you you can't 
recast someone as Marty McFly now. Oh, that would be crazy. He's also Marty McFly Jr. and Marlene McFly. Right. So he's, he, he's pulling like triple duty in this film. Right. But he uh, he had a, a lot of films to do in between the first film and this one. He did Teen Wolf, which was super popular in the mid 80s. And then he did the super serious Oliver Stone ripoff Vietnam War film, Casualties of War. Yeah. Which is, uh, it is not a great movie. You didn't like it? It is so emotionally heavy. You, oh, yeah. There is absolutely no, I mean, say what you will about Oliver Stone and some of his movies, but at least there was some moments of levity and times you could breathe in those films. The casualties of war is just you do not feel good at the end of that film. Oh, it's really depressing. I saw that 10 years ago, and I do have to say, Michael J. Fox does seem a little out of place in it because he's like so short and just seeing him in Teen Wolf and all these films, you're like, why are you in this heavy film? But kudos to him for trying to expand his craft, you know? Right, his, but his oeuvre is quirky oh. comedies. It's not ultra Forever. serious films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's somebody who figured out what his style is. Early on. Right. <laughs> we also have the return of Christopher Lloyd. Yes. Doc Brown, which I don't think you could recast that at all. No, it, it it's great when you have two characters in a series like this that are inextricably tied together forever it's it's harrison ford and sean connery in the indiana jones series uh also we have a couple of recasts for for this film uh elizabeth shoe took over for from claudia wells as jennifer parker but elizabeth shoe was no no slouch to 80s movies she appeared in the karate kid cocktail adventures and babysitting However, she does spend most of this film and the next film unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> so take that for what you will. Also in the recast department, we have Jeffrey Weissman took over as George McFly from Crispin Glover. Yes. So Crispin Glover. Also know. known as the weirdest man in Hollywood. <laughs> so I know um, he got replaced. So the, there's always, I know he was on a podcast. He's on YouTube. He's talked about this in interviews over the course of uh, probably, what, 30 years, about why he chose to, uh, I guess, not reappear in this. But the big thing that he said was the money. They only offered him 125000 which is incredible, That which was, he said, less than half of what their salaries were. And then philosophical differences. He didn't like how, apparently in his mind, the whole point of this trilogy is Marty getting a truck. And... And he thought it should have been about love. Crispin Glover's whole career can be summed up by the fact that he doesn't know what movie he's in. I think he totally missed the point of Back to the Future. It, it, it's nothing more than an escapist sci-fi comedy romp. Yeah. And to glean anything, any meaningful message from that is just, okay, you're <laughs> you're down in the in the mud with the pigs looking for truffles there. Like you gotta right? you gotta tone down on your critical analysis there, son. Like I get it. I get what he means by like he felt the story rewarded characters with financial gain, kind of with the truck, but like in this film, Marty tries to get financial gain and Doc turns him down and it ends up being the paradox the the um crisis in the film which causes all the conflict and then when marty tries to get money with needles he ends up losing his job so to me it's kind of like okay where's this financial gain i mean yeah he gets his truck but 
You know, yeah, it kind of blows my mind a little bit. Bottom line, Crispin Glover wanted <laughs> Marlon Brando money at a time where he wasn't going to be and never will be Marlon Brando. So, yeah, take that. <laughs> oh, man. He is an author, though. But they did recast him with Jeffrey Weissman, who they obscured him and kind of like took George McFly out of the plot. So, like, that's why he's upside down. And they actually put like a false chin, nose, cheekbones and... He kind of sounds, it's kind of like, if you don't focus too hard on the character, it seems like Crispin Glover. Right. It's like gleaming over the fact that Marty's kids are played by Michael J. Fox. Yes. But the whole They point... got all of dad's genes. <laughs> Though, with that being said, the studio using his likeness, like Robert Zemeckis, caused a big lawsuit with Crispin Glover, and he sued the producers of the film on the grounds that they neither owned his likeness nor could use it without his consent. So the Screen Actors Guild Award changed their collective bargaining. So now for the future, like actors now, you have to sign a contract and you get royalties and all that. So it is a good positive thing like taking the power away from the producers it's just the it, fact that the he, way the <laughs> fact that he's now that crispin glover is now tied with that contract clause is weird because right. there's still the video of him almost kicking david letterman in the head. like really he ushered this change in hollywood it's, he's just it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it he's just such a conglomerate of confusion but enough about crispin glover we also have Leah Thompson returning to play Lorraine. Thomas F. Wilson returned to play Biff. Uh, James Tolkien also returned to play Mr. Strickland briefly in the film. So for the most part, the same cast and crew returned. So awesome. Always good when you can have that consistency in a series. Mm-hmm. So they kind of ramped up the production on this 10 times compared to the first film. It's budgeted at $40 million. Zemeckis and the screenwriter Bob Gale were hesitant about making a sequel. Yeah, they didn't want to at at the beginning. And it kind of shows, and we'll get into it with the plot, with like the ending. But apparently due to this massive success, they're like, all right, we have to. There's no going back on this. Well, right. And Bob Gale has now since expressed regret for how he ended the first film with Mm -hmm. Marty and Jennifer flying off with Doc because it forced them to continue on that journey from the first film. But that does, I do think, and we'll get into our, I guess, criticism, with sequels, how they go, I think you do have two ways of doing it. You can either pick up where you left off or you can retcon like Star Wars. Now, what you do when you pick up where you left off, you could do like a Ryan Johnson, you know, where you still pick up but you retcon. Or you could, you know, do like this film. Kind of do callbacks but form your own film in a say, in a way without being too self-referential, trying to find that middle ground. I just wish that they would have taken like a bigger step creative-wise with with Back to the Future Part 2. I agree. The original draft of the film had it set in 1967. Oh, yeah. So it could have been very interesting to explore that time period when the 60s, you know, free love, man, was still in full swing. (laughs) The Manson family hadn't murdered a whole bunch of people yet. (laughs) Yeah, seeing Michael J. Fox get tempted with, like, weed and all that. Right. It could have been a lot of interesting story choices there, but they, uh, I don't want to say they played it safe. I think they just went back to a formula that really worked for them. Yeah. Um, But the biggest challenge from what I can gather was... Um, recreating Hill Valley 2015. And that took two years of set building. Two years. And if you look at it, 
when the film's going on, it's incredible. It's one of the most impressive sets I've seen outside of a James Bond film. Yes. I'll agree with you there. It's it's nuts. Like they recreate everything and it looks immaculate. The clock tower, the pond, all the shops. That whole garden there, the shops, the even the cars that come floating down which is it's still amazing although Rick Carter the production designer kind of didn't have a whole lot to work with in terms of uh directions oh yeah <laughs> I mean, I mean, but he also worked on Blade Runner so he had the challenge of creating something that was almost an anti Blade Runner yes that I read up on that that he did not well Zemeckis didn't want to go the dystopian you know future like you know, Space Odyssey 2001, Blade Runner, because it's just been done so many times. And I think, and we'll talk about how, you know, the future and everything, the tech, but I think their humorous look at the future, like, ah, whatever, let's just make this crazy and big, ended up working. They lean hard into the ridiculous aspect yeah. of anything that could happen in the future, even down to the wardrobe of wearing your pants inside out, the <laughs> the power laces, the the... I guess, what would you call that hat that Marty Jr. is wearing? Is that a mood hat? or I, I guess. Is that one of those hats that changes colors when you move? Did like, you see the hats the kids were wearing? They were wearing pans on their head. Literal pans? pans. Oh, like, I, like, I must have missed that. <laughs> Dude, it's real quick, but like how you, you know, um, wash your noodles and drain it. They're, They're wearing colanders on their heads? I swear to God. <laughs> That's why I'm like, wait, this kid's talking crap about this shooting. Elijah thing? Wood is getting royalties for wearing a freaking colander on his head. Oh, that's right, Elijah Wood's in here with that use that kid. Right. Well, even the the special effects were incredibly advanced for the time. The the, the aging makeup techniques those were kept on the super down low, um, and it's also one of the first films to incorporate digital composite shots, where the two shots are combined to form one image on the screen with. Yeah, the old version and the of the actor and the young version. We'll we'll, we'll get to those later mm-hmm. though, because it, it is worth diving into a bit deeper. Absolutely. So let's talk about the film. Let's really dig into the meat and potatoes here. Mm-hmm. So we were talking a bit off air, and we had a I don't want to call it a disagreement because <laughs> I think let's call it a polite disagreement. A polite disagreement. There we go. There's in no regards shouting. in regards to how the structure. Um, is for the film. Yeah. So what did you think about how uh, part two is laid out for our viewing pleasure? So, you know, it picks up right where it's left off and then they take them to the future and it's kind of devised basically into three parts, the future, 1985 and 1955. Now, my issues with the future, while it does look incredible, you know, the sets, the tech, it's so out of this world and ridiculous, um, I felt like the film didn't start cooking until the time, pa- till uh, Biff takes the magazine back and then they realize the conflict in 1985. Because in 2015, it had a lot of callbacks to the original film. Like, um, when you get there, Marty conf- confronts Griff, or Biff, at the bar. Then he pisses him off and is chased around town. And then Griff falls into the t- clock tower and gets, you know, like how Biff in the original hits the manure truck. So they have those similarities. Marty, instead of, he gets knocked out in 1985 and then wakes up next to his mom taking care of him. In the original one, after his mom takes care of him, he witnesses his family. Jennifer's knocked out. She goes, sees her family. There's just a lot of, you know, things that they recycled. And to me, I felt like the future... 
it was just so recycled. The only point of them going to the future was for him to get the magazine, talk about it, paradox, and then for Biff to take it back in time, you know, to get establish the conflict in the film. It was cool seeing their family and seeing that, you know, the conflict and the, how their lives are changing, yada, yada. But it just, to me, it just felt so recycled. And like I was watching kind of like how Hangover 2 is the same film with the same plot, just in a different location. That's how the first third of the film felt. Enjoyable. They did a really good job. And he picked the best scenes from the first to do. So if you're going to do a sequel with that scenes, with those scenes, I'm glad he picked it. But, you know, sometimes when you play the same hand twice, you don't win. So that's kind of my... Disagree Again, this is where we politely disagree. Yeah. I think the, the, the first act of the film where they are in 2015 and we do see the impressive set piece of the the future Hill Valley and just the sheer ridiculousness of the future is so entertaining to watch. And to me, this is where I feel like the film really treads new ground for for it being a sequel. This is something I feel all sequels should do. They have to tread new ground. They have to expand their universe. And this is doing it for me right here, setting the film in 2015. This is where the film should have been set for the entirety. It should have in in and Marty buying the sports almanac and Doc telling him I didn't build the time machine to get rich, and it really kind of admonishing him for his choices, which and it really plays into the whole father son relationship that they that they have in a way. Yeah. I, I it's hard to imagine Marty and Doc as peers A because of the age difference and B because they have such wildly different opinions about what the time machine can be used for. And it's clear when Marty buys that sports almanac of what he really wants to use time travel for. And I that's where the film should have been at home. And then we see what Marty and Jennifer are like further down in this timeline. They're not happy. Their house is I don't want to say in shambles. It still looks like a nice house by 2015 standards, but they live in a crappy neighborhood. There's graffiti. There's gunshots, sirens all over the place. Marty Jr. seems like a bit of a screw up. Um, Marlene clearly has been home all day, Not doesn't have a job or anything like that. Uh, Jennifer has gotten old and fat. Marty's in a job he doesn't like. So clearly things are not going super well in 2015 and I really felt like that could have been something interesting that was explored in this film and but it, they they chose not to they went back to Biff's 1985 where he rules everything because he got the sports almanac and Lorraine has big boobs and then they have to go back to 1955 and pretty much explore the entirety of the first film in a condensed version they spend half of the second act and the final third act basically going through the final two thirds of back to the future part one mm-hmm. and yeah they they had an opportunity to do something really interesting with the story and played it safe by going back to the first film literally going back to the first film that's what i mean they played it safe in so many areas in the film where it's just like oh <laughs> you you tread new ground in little areas you know like 1985 biffs is really cool where they're fleshing out the hotel and everything what it looks like but it's just it's not enough it should have been called biff to the future yeah because the most interesting part of marty going back to uh 
Biff 1985 is how corrupt and powerful and scary Biff has become and how he has everyone under his thumb, how he claims to love Lorraine and yet is doing everything he can to just keep her family under his thumb. Yeah. He's so willing to cut her cut off her daughter to let her eldest son go back to jail and to send Marty back to boarding school and put her out on the street. Yeah. It's horrible to watch Lorraine just capitulate to <laughs> his demands and his power. Well, like he said, you will be my wife. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> ladies, if anybody runs down the street at you yelling, you will be my wife, they are not good husband material. Oh my that e- is a PSA courtesy of Force Fed Sci-Fi. Well, even old Biff says you always had a way with women, didn't you? Yeah. he. Like, he's like, you idiot. Old Biff. Old Biff is laying some knowledge down on young Biff. Like, hey, don't treat women like you do. You know, listen and don't be a jackass. <laughs> and then 30 years later, guess what he's doing? Same thing. He literally did not listen to his, his better self. His better self, yes. The nicer Biff that's still kind of a prick, but Biff nonetheless. And we don't even have most of the interesting characters during this portion of the film. Like we said, Jennifer spends... Pretty much the entirety of the film unconscious. Well, yeah. I, Doc is becomes this Obi Wan Kenobi character where he's he's able to give Marty insight into the past and the future by mm-hmm. exploring what happens in Biff's timeline. Yes. And Marty is just this clueless wanderer in 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 Biff nineteen eighty five. Well, it's like when Marty went back in the first one, he felt kind of like a high school kid. That was 18, but this one he doesn't really feel like he's 18. Maybe that's because... Um, no, I think Michael- it's I think it's the passage of time yeah. from when the films came out. Michael J. Fox is older. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, he's still doing teen comedies and the occasional you know, weird, super serious war film, but <laughs> he's still very much pictured as a young kid. Mm-hmm. But doesn't act too much like one. No. Except for the gambling. <laughs> but the Jennifer thing, to me... I feel like that was just, not only was it kind of, I guess, a lens flare, but it was also a, um, I feel like the writers didn't know what to do with her. Like that you really felt where Robert was like, oh crap, why do we have that scene at the end of the first one? Well, now we got to do something with her. Let's just knock her out, you know? It would have been one thing if they expanded her role in the next film, but mm-hmm. she spends Same. the entirety of that film unconscious as well. While Marty's messing around in the Old West, she's still laying on her front porch unconscious. And that's what I mean. They recycle. And then Marty shows up in the last 10 minutes, kisses her on the forehead, and like, oh, I'm awake now. Yeah. My prince. <laughs> right? I mean, it in the first one, it made sense. Back why to she the future, wasn't. Sleeping Beauty style. Yeah. Yes. She wasn't awake in the first one because he was back in time. Right. It and doesn't so, make sense for yes, that character to be there. But when they come back together at the end, it's cute because it's like, oh, he missed her. But in this, it's just like, okay, it's been two films, Passage of Time. What? So that was that was kind of an issue for me a little bit. Well, if I had to pick a lens flare, mm-hmm. my whole thing, you, we know how the first film ended and how it transitions into the second film. With Doc showing up going, no, 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 you and Jennifer turn out all right. It's your kids. Something's got to be done about your kids. And then we see how (laughs) crappy their marriage is and how messed up their life is. You mean to tell me that that's all right by your standards? (laughs) Doc, yeah. 
Uh, as far as I can tell, Doc has never had a serious romantic relationship, no. so he just does not have a clue about what is all right in a marriage. <laughs> well, we, I guess you mean to tell me that that's all right? <laughs> well, up and in- yet interfering with the lives of our children is okay, <laughs> right? Well, his barometer. All he's had is Iny. He doesn't know until the third one what it's like to woo a woman, right? So yeah, he's like sixty years. I found love. <laughs> Right. I had to travel a hundred years in the past to find the love of my life. <laughs> God would, God knows what would have happened if I didn't have this time machine. <laughs> that is hilarious. Also, I would say maybe for a second the guy in 1955 was like, "Are you Marty McFly? I got something for you." And then he's like, "Really nice." I'm like, "What? What? Why are you?" Yeah, he's the Western Union guy. Why are you? Oh, is that how Western Union people are? They I don't know. First and then they're. Nobody's had to send a telegraph since telephones were, became widely available. <laughs> <laughs> was that how it was? They hand-delivered them? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah, you ha- you'd have a telegraph office. I mean, yeah, because if, oh, if you watch Deadwood, you'd actually know this. Uh, <laughs> before, everybody just sent letters that were hand-delivered, and then the telegraph came, and you could actually send messages over the wire. And so you had the person receiving the messages in the telegraph office, Ooh. and then you had a runner that would hand-deliver those messages to people. <laughs> See, you'd know this if you watched Deadwood. It didn't make stupid jokes about it. But the wood Don't say it! (laughs) For the love of God, do not say it. (laughs) So speaking of uh, (laughs) Deadwood, how about product placements in this film? So much. Oh, my God. And it's... It's big time when we see it in when Marty goes back in time, obviously. Well, that was a correct prediction of the future, except for Texaco. Is Texaco around? I don't, I don't even, even know. know. I mean, I think maybe a bigger one would have been maybe Exxon or yeah. Mobil um, or even Chevron would have would have made sense. I don't even know. I don't know where Texaco is. There are two in the state of Illinois. So oh, wow. They gambled wrong. So just <laughs> like just like how the one Waffle House in Illinois is like yeah. 400 miles south from where we are. That's Texaco <laughs> for you, baby. Yeah. Cause, Northern Southern. Uh, yeah. Because if you don't live in Illinois, once you get past Springfield, it is the south. Yes. <laughs> just, oh. Just watch TV. <laughs> I would say once you get past Peoria, it's the south. Oh, that too. Good God. Hey, th- where'd this accent come from? We call it the cotton corn line. <laughs> Those hicks. So, yes, there's Pepsi. He literally orders a Pepsi and says Pepsi. And uh, what else? Well, even there? the first film was an ad for Pepsi because he tries ordering a Pepsi free. And then. Oh, that's he, another thing. And then he gets a tab. So, I mean, product placement isn't anything new to this series. The Nikes. Oh, yeah. AT&T. Yeah, but those power laces were awesome. Though. They were awesome. Everyone wants them. And we did not see a brand for the form-fitting jacket, which again, so cool. Yes, it size, it fits your size and it dries you. Right. That's amazing. Imagine what else it can do. Like if it charged my phone like done, I'm buying this jacket. <laughs> it sounds amazing and we don't have it. No. Clothing companies. What are you doing? Get on that. Nike. Nike's already working on a way for power laces. I think there's a company out there that's going to work on this type of jacket. They do have jackets with speakers in them, though. But I don't want kinda... that, though. No, you don't want to. I don't want that. <laughs> you... I want to charge my phone. I have a nice enough car where I don't have to worry about 
speakers or you know like what's wrong with headphones right i uh, maybe maybe there's people on the street who don't want to hear what else i listen to it's true they don't want to hear my conspiracy theory podcasts <laughs> 9 11 was an inside job what what did you say young man <laughs> exactly i don't need strange looks coming my way <laughs> like did your jacket just say something <laughs> why is your jacket swearing at me what's going on what else? But it's it's amazing how prescient that this future displayed really is because we see technology all over the place. We see video chat screens, fingerprint scanners, news drones. Oh, yeah. There are screens everywhere in twenty in this 2015. It was a perfect prediction yeah, for most things. For most of the things. I mean, I did love the the 3D hologram billboards, whatever. Those were cool. <laughs> the jaws coming down. It was funny how... <laughs> this still looks fake. It's st- <laughs> I knew it was fake. <laughs> well, it wasn't the only thing that was self-referential. You you noticed something in the, the curio shop window, right. right? When they're zooming in on the, uh, the sports almanac, if you pause it, because I noticed it real quickly... Uh, Robert Zemeckis was directing the Who Frame Roger Rabbits, and there is a Roger Rabbit plush doll right next to the almanac, and it's kind of quick unless you pause it. But so he was self-referencing his own film that may have just come out, and so how cool is that? Yeah, be- I, I, that's something I have no problem with because it's not something he stuck right next to the yes. sports almanac. Like like she hands him the plush doll first. How, would you like this Roger Rabbit plush doll that came out in 1988 feature? It's like, all right. This is like uh, Alfred Hitchcock walking by a yes. storefront window in Psycho. Like It's really? just subtle enough to where it's, it's not bothersome. So that was pretty cool. Uh, I missed all the callbacks and everything. I right. <laughs> I mean, even Spielberg in Jaws 19, I mean, I'm sure he doesn't care. And I think for the hologram, the special effects guy, when he first saw it um, and the director, they were okay with it looking kind of fake, like really fake, because I think at the time they had special effects to clean it up a little bit to make it look not so bluey and cartoonish but he said he loved it he loved the distortion he loved how cheesy it looked right they kept it it like that it still looks cheesy but it's it's, it's part of the charm of the film yes it does the job for 19 but we see that level of special effects and then Mm -hmm. we see the other special effects in the film the car flying and everything yeah which it blows your mind that it's this was made in 89 or they were making this in 88 yeah, the floating DeLorean is some of the special, uh, some of the best special effects in the film. Also, how they created those composite shots—they had they created um, it the VistaGlide motion control camera system. So that really allowed them to incorporate the camera movements into the shot. Now, the the composite shots have been around in films for years, but this is the first time where the camera was really able to move within the scenery Mm -hmm. and really not make it seem like, oh, the actors are just sitting side by side and it's pretty obvious that way. But no, they're interacting with each other. I think the best use of it in the film is when the two Doc Browns are communicating with each other. You have, you know, 2015 Doc handing 1955 Doc tools around the uh, the lamppost. So it it was neat to watch. It was. I love those scenes, especially with uh, Biff talking to Biff in the car. 
those there it's just fun seeing that technique used um and how they were able to do it so flawlessly and, and it didn't look hokey no one does it anymore no it's just easier to computer graphic people now well in moon they utilized it with Sam Rockwell yeah. fighting himself, which was your lens flare, <laughs> but nevertheless. Well, it just didn't make sense that they've known each other for 20 minutes and they're already beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> but that's a good usage of it, too. Uh, so kudos to them for, once again, in a Back to the Future film, progressing special effects and really breaking new ground, driving cinematography, cinema in of itself. Yeah, I did love that line at the end. Like, well, just land on top of him, crush his car. Like, <laughs> he's in a 46 Ford, we're in a DeLorean. He'll run through us like tinfoil. <laughs> there is so many catchy lines in this film. You, they fleshed out, uh, what, it, Strickland? Slacker, you got an attitude problem, Tannen. I always wanted more Strickland in all of the films. Always. He's so great. Plus, the actor is so great. Yes. He, he was the, uh, we probably mentioned this in the first episode, but he was the the admiral in Top Gun who was always like, you're a loose cannon, Maverick. <laughs> He's great. He is. If you needed like some hard-ass authority figure in a mid to late 80s film, you called James Tolkien. <laughs> He'll point a shotgun at you, chase right. you down the street. I love, love that scene. <laughs> Marty does. shows up on the porch like, so you're the one who's been stealing my newspaper. <laughs> Eat lead slackers. That is such an inappropriate response to someone stealing your newspaper. <laughs> right. I mean, that's on the same level as like putting a firecracker in the newspaper. <laughs> you're like, that'll teach him. It's perfect. His character, I'm so glad they fleshed him out a little bit in this film. So kudos. That's a highlight of the movie. See? The fleshing out of uh, several characters while leaving others unconscious or unmentioned. <laughs> right. Their, their love for 1955. Well, even when they go back in 1955, it, even the characters of George and Lorraine are left unexplored. Yeah. The same, the exact, everything that's happening to them in the first film is happening here. There's no change there. I was sad that we didn't get to see a little bit more of Lorraine. I really like her character and the actress that plays her. Aaliyah Thompson's great. I mean, uh, she's so good. I just watched um, the original Red Dawn the oh. other night, not for the first time, but just like you know what? It's in my Netflix. <laughs> Let's watch it. Yeah. It's it's still. I mean, it kind of holds up. Granted, it's a lot of right wing fantasy now, but it's 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 still a fun movie to watch. <laughs> What is it about the Nazis attack? No, it's when the the Soviets invade uh, Western United States. Oh yeah, that's and a bunch of high schoolers kind of band together to to fight to fight the invaders. (laughs) That's right wing fantasy. Oh, just watch it; you'll get what I mean. (laughs) Those Soviet or socialists will take them out. Well, and I think one of the strengths of this film, more so than the first one, and it really explores the consequences of time travel. Okay. If anything, this is a anti-time travel film where the first film was, yeah, pro-time travel. See, it can change your life. It changes your parents' life. And you (laughs) open the garage door and you have a Jeep. (laughs) And then this is anti-time travel because we see the consequences of Marty buying a sports almanac, it winding up in Biff's hands and totally changing the town and his family he comes back to Biff 1985 and his father's dead. Been murdered by the man. Right, murdered by Biff. Right. Two McFlies with the same gun. Yeah, he 
And again, Doc admonished him for buying the almanac. And granted, I think that was a poor decision to just throw it in the garbage and then leave the time machine unattended. And do you mean to tell me there isn't any sort of like locking mechanism on the time machine or any type of fingerprint scanner to make sure like, hey, the person who's supposed to be driving this thing actually is driving this thing? Well, you know, maybe the Delore maybe Doc wasn't that uh, attuned to the locking mechanism. He seems like a moral and ethical guy, very well, hopeful. And I did like this idea of exploring one timeline versus multiple timelines. Yes, that was the ho- that was a good part of the film. I love when you get them back in the lab and they're like drawing on the chalkboard. They skewed us to this Biff timeline, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something I hope that. Other other time travel films do incorporate at some point. I mean, it still remains to be seen what the MCU does. But again, we can hope. But I think this is a, it is a very interesting aspect when you are discussing time travel of going from one timeline to another. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, well, they set it up in a very simplistic way, and they set the rules like we enjoy. They explain the paradox, which a lot of time travel films don't talk about the paradoxes ever. So I think that's why these films work so well, particularly this one with changing the past and going back. Whereas many time travel films, like, you know, 12 Monkeys that we've discussed, just doesn't make sense. Even Looper, where it's like, we need more. Tell us the rules of time travel. And right. It makes sense. Not like this. Well, we haven't done a time travel film in a while. I no. know. This is our first in quite some time. Quite some time. Well, we had like... 10 or 12 of them in the first like 30 episodes. <laughs> right. Then sweet after sweet. And then cloning after cloning. Right. <laughs> in between a French baguette film. Wait, wait. <laughs> Mr. Baguette. <laughs> so I'm glad we got this. Uh, but the paradox, I think, served as, at least to me, a good, uh, good conflict in the film. Yeah, it's still very much a back to the future film mm-hmm. we still get all the same gags same characters just mm-hmm. done in a different way i guess yeah it's a good i don't know i think with sequels how do you feel about this with sequels is it a good um blueprint for how sequels should be done or do you think this was the first sequel that kind of like let down uh, well outside of like jaws or something well, this is inevitable with any sort of franchise, especially when you have a film like the first in this series that set the bar super high. Anything that's going to be that's going to come after it is going to inevitably be a letdown in some way. It's like with the James Bond series; it's like going from Skyfall to Spectre. Mm-hmm. It, of course, it's, it's tough. of course it, it's tough to follow that up. I mean, not many. Um, series have done that like what I've never seen Godfather 2 but what? I've heard it's amazing and it beats the first one I've heard you know it's like I'm- 1A and 1B I, I will I will never say Godfather Part 2 is above Godfather huh. but I think it's on the same level alright that's cool yeah yeah alright then Godfather 3 oh yeah Go- doo-doo stew <laughs> massive doo-doo stew but we can't always get um empire strikes back no you know, that's it, that's so tough well and it's so hard to duplicate the magic that made the first film so good if anything i think this is a blueprint of how not to make a sequel you don't expand the universe you don't introduce new characters 
you don't reinforce the rules set of set forth from the first film it's when you when you go back to the events of the first film and literally replay those out you're basically just doing part two of the first film like hangover two right <laughs> where it's the same you're doing film. the exact same thing just different circumstances <laughs> so with all of that in mind Let's discuss the legacy of Back to the Future Part 2. Okay. So take this for what you will. It holds a 65% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, as well as a 57% rating on Metacritic. Yeah. I think the Metacritic's a tad harsh. I do too. I couldn't believe it gave it, it, gave it that low. Even the Rotten Tomatoes, 65. I'm like, really? This isn't that bad. No. Considering... <laughs> But, you know, take those for what you will. Metacritic always right. seems the, to be pretty user, harsh. It's user-edited reviews on the internet. We all know how safe the internet is. Yes. And then IMDb gives it a 7.8. So, you know, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Of right. Those, I would call this, a, a, if we're using the IMDb scale, I'd call it like a like a, a, a 6.75. All right. Holla. Well, and it released in 1989 which is a banner year for films it was the third highest grossing film of the year behind indiana jones and the last crusade and tim burton's batman which are uh, both are unfortunately not sci-fi films so they will not be on our list <laughs> unless we change the rules one of these days <laughs> we're not going to though <laughs> it was nominated for an academy award for best visual effects and it did win the saturn award for the same category and it made a bunch of money on VHS. Yes. When they released it. Because I know I watched the crap out of these films when I was a kid. Loved them. You know, oddly enough, this was this series was not one that my dad had purchased. Really? Yeah. So I didn't come to this series maybe until I was about 15. Wow. Yeah. It's so late. I know. <laughs> no way. I'm not upset at my yeah. at my parents for not buying this. I mean, because my dad always enjoys watching the first film. I thought for sure we would have at least had the first one in our household, but no. It was always just like Terminator and Predator on repeat in my house, pretty much. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So he's like one of those dads. Yeah. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> it, yeah, so I can sit down with him and watch a rated R film, but The Simpsons was something that was like, Whoa, no, turn off The Simpsons. <laughs> we can't see cartoons talking right. crazy. Well, it, I think Universal was also disappointed with the gross of part two as it only made $336 million. Yeah. Wasn't nearly as much as the first film grossed. Yeah. But again, it's the same problem with a, a, a starter film that is so beloved. Exactly. Anything else is going to be a letdown. Exactly. It's it, few far between ever surpassed. So I think it still did darn good for its budget and for what it's worth. Well, what it, didn't help was yeah. the fact that part three came out six months after this film came out. There was no time yeah. to build excitement and anticipation. No. And it was just so quick. And then you get the trailer at the end. I wish they would have waited because we saw that with The Matrix that series where they released back-to-back after six months apart. And we saw it with Star Wars this, what, 2018, 20, you know, Last it's Jedi fatigue. and Solo. People just don't want to see films that close. We want to get it on our, v- on our DVD, Blu-ray, Blu-ray, watch, 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 you know. Give us some time to digest it. Yeah, it's, it's fatigue. It's audience fatigue. You see it all the time. It's why... It's why hardly anybody makes sitcoms anymore. It's why you don't release films 
within this this films within the same series in the same calendar year you don't do it give us some time right studios follow the avengers way you have infinity war one year and endgame the next year Mm. that's how you do it exactly speaking of fatigue did you have any red shirts in this film no one dies no except george yeah (laughs) and his death is essential to the plot of uh, the biff 1985 timeline so no one dies no one dies there's really no yellow shirts either no, there's nobody who I would consider like a hero. I mean, maybe Doc when he swoops in with the DeLorean to catch Marty when he jumps off the casino roof. You're so good, Doc. Woo! Woo! You caught me. <laughs> Thank God for the flying DeLorean. <laughs> I I enjoyed the guy that was like, I think he took his wallet. Yeah, just the just parroting the action of the film. Yes. I think he took his wallet. I think he took his wallet. <laughs> We get it. We get it. You think he no, took his even wallet. Even in 1955, no one's like, dude, shut up. We <laughs> saw it. So with that, what would you uh, rate this film, Chris, with our scale of would watch or wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party? You know, I'm going to give this the same rating I gave the first Back to the Future. I'm going to call this a would host a viewing party. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean- I think while no film is going to be able to capture the f- the same feeling as the first film, this is still fun to watch in its own right. Uh, the 2015 sequence is particularly enjoyable. It does offer something new that I think every sequel needs to include, but most of the film is still essentially the same as the first. And part two does a great job, like we mentioned, of exploring the consequences of time travel. And it is mostly fantasy in the film, those consequences are something to consider if time travel does become a reality. And I think subsequent um, entertainment entries in this franchise, like the the television cartoon, um, the Telltale Games uh, video game that came out uh, several years ago, I think those do a good job of exploring timelines and concepts that sh- could have been used in this film. So it's not from a lack of plot lines in part two where we do get those ideas in subsequent back to the future property. So I, I still, I love the first one. I love this film. So I'd host a viewing party anytime. <laughs> what about you, Sean? Uh, you couldn't have said it any better. Um, or I couldn't have said it any better. I'd host a viewing party as well. Love the characters. It's so great to come back to them and watch them. Good story, good fleshy, you know, meaty, divulgent of them i love fleshing them out and seeing doc and marty and biff and all that and it's just that's probably one of my favorite scenes doc talking to himself you know the older and younger version in 1955 so i would love to host a viewing party for this i would host a viewing party for all three to sit down and watch them because it's just it's We're a great eight hour party Ooh. all right Ooga. <laughs> I love the series, love everything about it, so it's got my vote for sure. So Awesome. Well, then that means we get to throw in part three into the list, and uh, maybe in another year or so we'll come back to the <laughs> Back to the Future series. So what do you say we pick our movie for next time? Let's do it. So we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, to help us select from a list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected number 51. It is a film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe from 2015, directed by Peyton Reed and starring Paul Rudd. It is Ant-Man. 
Sweet. All right. <laughs> I'm stoked. <laughs> so that'll be our film for next time. And uh, before we sign off today, uh, recently I had a chance to meet with uh, one of our listeners and friend uh, by the name of Katie. So we just want to give a shout out to her. She is going through a tough time lately. Just want you to know that we are thinking of you and we are hoping you are doing better. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at FourceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time. Forcefed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.